I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And much of what we perceive is subjective. When you and I look at a text, a film, a painting, we carry the weight of our experiences with us into that encounter. So what happens when we look at the same thing in radically different ways? Which interpretation takes precedent and why? Our guest this week has written about how clashing perspectives are roiling one of our nation's most prestigious universities. David Latt is a lawyer turned writer. He is the founder of Original Jurisdiction, a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession. Before launching Original Jurisdiction, David founded Above the Law, the widely read legal news website, which he led as managing editor from 2006 to 2017. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you are very welcome. Now, I initially asked you on the show to discuss what's been happening at Yale, and specifically Yale Law School, over the last several weeks. But as I was prepping for our conversation and doing my, to use some legal lingo, due diligence, I realized that if I brushed past your biography, I would be doing myself a serious disservice because you've lived quite a life so far. So you grew up with former President Richard Nixon as a neighbor. (laughs) You attended Harvard and then Yale for law school, worked as a federal prosecutor, launched Underneath the Robes in 2004, a popular, what I suppose one would call a judicial gossip blog under the female pseudonym Article 3 Groupie. And for our listeners, Article 3 of the Constitution established the judicial branch of the federal government. You founded the aforementioned Above the Law, which is a news site that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the legal world and reaches more than 1.5 million unique visitors a month. And you've written a well-reviewed fictional novel, Supreme Ambitions. So that's not everything, but I think it's a decent-sized chunk. So my first question to you is, you're the son of two doctors. So what first got you interested in pursuing the law? Because I'm assuming it wasn't Richard Nixon offering career advice as he gave you a Halloween card. (laughs) No, like you, I'm not a STEM person, (laughs) even though I greatly admire people in those fields. And I always drifted towards the humanities and social sciences more than the hard sciences. And so I think I already was not cut out to go into medicine. And then when I was in college, I majored in English and I just loved reading uh, literature, poetry, novels. In my senior year of college, I couldn't really figure out what to do with myself. And my parents, immigrants from the Philippines, were very much in favor of my getting more education. I think it's a typical immigrant mindset. And again, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And a lot of people I knew were going to law school. They were people who, like me, enjoyed writing and speaking. I was active in the college newspaper and on the debate team. And so, Law school seemed a very natural thing. The dean of Yale Law School at the time, when I told him I, why I came to law school story, he said, well, that makes sense. Law school is the great American default option for smart kids who don't like the sight of blood. And so that very much fit me. <laughs> That's great. I actually haven't heard that one before. But I have dated a lawyer turned writer because she similarly is the daughter of immigrants. Wasn't quite sure what to do after college. And um, I think much to her parents' joy, decided to pursue the thing that they thought that she would like, which was being a lawyer. But over time, of course, she did less and less law and more and more writing. So a similar trajectory. As a fellow English major, and this is sort of off topic, but I always feel the need to commiserate when I come across another one in the wild. It reminds me of one of my favorite jokes about English majors. Perhaps you've heard it. What is the difference between an English major and a pizza? Uh, I don't know, actually. Well, David, a pizza can feed a family. 
I hadn't heard that one. That's a good one. And it's, uh, there's some truth to it, which is why so many English majors end up in law school, because uh, at least lawyers can feed their families usually. Exactly. But clearly, I mean, and we'll get into your writing career, and even though you are no longer a practicing lawyer, to my knowledge, you are still very much in love with the law. So what are some of your favorite aspects of the law, and what did you really enjoy while you were at law school? There's a lot of overlap between those two categories. I like the intellectual challenge of it. I enjoy the rigor of it. I also enjoy the commitment to open debate and to really taking nothing for granted and being willing to interrogate everything, which is, of course, something that I know you're quite interested in. And so I just have always been attracted to the commitment of law and the legal profession to free and open debate and to, I guess you could say, a liberal project in that way. I think most lawyers would fall into, at least right now, more of a liberal camp than a progressive camp in terms of where they fall in the political spectrum. And they're much more committed to free and open thought and argument as opposed to something more identity-driven in terms of identity politics. Let's investigate that, something you said just now. What, in your view, is the difference between a liberal and a progressive? Because for me, I'm not exactly sure where one starts and the other ends, and maybe there isn't a clear line of demarcation, but what it means to be liberal, so to speak, is something that I think a lot of people on the left and perhaps even on the right are struggling with defining. I know that the right is also kind of undergoing a similar sort of inward looking, (laughs) what are we sort of thing as well. But one of the reasons that this podcast is named what it is, is I was kind of struggling with what it means to be a liberal in 2021. So for you, what is the difference between someone who I suppose is on the left and is considered liberal and someone who is progressive in your view? Yeah. And again, I will confine that to folks on the left, as you just stated, because I think there are some people who would be perhaps say registered Republicans, but who have a a somewhat liberal mindset or are committed to liberal principles. And so I think of liberalism as, I guess, the etymology would reflect as focused on liberty and freedom. And I think that liberals on the left do share some of the traditional left-leaning goals of, say, economic equality, which you could say arguably promotes a certain kind of freedom in terms of making sure that everyone is at least having some baseline economically. But I think they're also committed to free speech and free expression. And it's very much sort of like the old school ACLU mindset, where I might loathe what you're saying, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. I think that is sort of like the traditional liberal viewpoint. And in the law, a lot of those people are now skewing older. I'm in my 40s. I'm probably the beginning of this. And I think a lot of people in their 50s and 60s and beyond are still very much in that mindset. I think that people younger than me, that's a little bit more of contested territory, but the legal profession does skew a little bit older. And so there are a large number of lawyers in their 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. Progressives, I think, are much more focused on some progress towards what they regard as a better future as maybe some kind of utopian project. And a lot of that, I think, is very much focused on the vindication of the rights of traditionally marginalized or oppressed groups. And a lot of that focuses on issues of identity. They might be folks who are racial or ethnic minorities. There might be a focus on gender issues. There might be a focus on sexual orientation or sexual or gender identity. And I think that the progressive project is much more focused on those things. I think, of course, it also shares a redistributionist 
aspect economically with what you would regard as traditional liberals of the left. But I think it is much more focused on these, I guess you could call them social justice issues. And so when people use shorthand, like, and this is usually, you know, derogatorily, but if you were to use shorthand, like social justice warrior or a woke person, I think a lot of that refers more to the progressives on the left than to the liberals on the left. Yes, I think that's a pretty great definition. And what you said about liberalism, I think is important. And I want to yes and it because I agree with it. Francis Fukuyama wrote an essay about this very definition of liberalism. It's called liberalism and its discontents. He wrote it for American Purpose, I believe, last year. And I've spoken about this actually on the show, the idea that you can be small L liberal, as in for liberalism, a liberal society, and be on either the left or the right, I think is something that's very important because the idea of liberalism, which basically, to sum up kind of Francis's definition, it's a system that allows a multicultural, diverse society to thrive because of the way that it is organized around things like free speech, free trade and those sorts of things, because it it realizes that for especially a society as diverse as ours, liberalism is kind of the only sustainable project. When you live in another country that is perhaps more ethnically or religiously homogenous, a less liberal system, so to speak, might be more achievable. But in a country like ours, where it's going to be hard for any two people to get on the same page about everything, liberalism is kind of the best thing we have that keeps really, I think, tribalism from sort of taking over and petty squabbles from descending into worse. So I just want to thank you for pointing that out, because I do think that when we define liberalism today, it is so much associated with purely the left. But I think that liberalism as a project is something that is accessible to everybody. No, absolutely. And I agree with Fukuyama's point. I think that what I like about liberalism is it allows for many visions of the good life. It allows each of us a space of freedom in which we can focus on what we want to focus on. Maybe I want to focus on writing. Maybe somebody wants to focus on the practice of law or of medicine or of volunteering for civic organizations. Maybe somebody wants to be active in a church. Maybe somebody doesn't. But liberalism allows for all of that. It's not trying to impose from above one kind of mindset or one vision of the good life, like say, maybe a theocratic society. Yes. And you can see illiberal strains that are happening on both the left and right. Uh, Obviously, the focus of much of our discussion today will be how they've manifested specifically in this instance on the left. But we could dedicate an entire podcast (laughs) to the Trumpism and things that are happening on the right that are equally as illiberal and damaging to the liberal project. So let's talk briefly about underneath their robes, which was (laughs) that's a hell of a segue. But I was so intrigued and I guess tickled by the whole backstory to it. Underneath their robes was to quote Jeffrey Tubin, the unofficial blog of record about the federal judiciary, end quote. And for the purposes of the blog, you assumed a pseudonym and specifically a female persona who went by Article 3 Groupie. And as you noted in a post about the New Yorker article that Tubin wrote about in the blog, Article 3 Groupie was a distinct personality separate from your own. Quote, my opinions and those of A3G are not exactly the same. In fact, some of the people that A3G has offered snarky commentary on are people for whom I harbor admiration, affection, or both. In short, A3G, Article 3 Groupie for the listeners, does as she pleases, and I cannot be blamed or held accountable (laughs) for any of her misdeeds, indiscretions, or occasional vulgarity, end quote. (laughs) This seems a bit tangential, but go with me here. I really connect with that, actually. It was one of my favorite parts about fiction writing, either short stories or screenplays that I wrote in school and afterwards. The characters that I would write were me in that they came from my brain, said what I wanted them to say, do what I told them to do, but they weren't me. 
they were from me, but they were separate from me. So how was that experience for you as a writer? And do you ever miss that dynamic as you write for your Substack original jurisdiction? Yes, absolutely. I do miss that dynamic. In some ways, it's really funny that you remind me of those words. I'd forgotten them. I think that Article 3 Groupie was almost like an id for me. She would often say things that maybe I kind of thought or kind of believed, but wasn't really willing to say. And in that sense, you could say there's some overlap with these contemporary debates about what is or is not permissible to say. But I will say that writing under a pseudonym is very liberating because you're not worried about the blowback. You're not worried about consequences for your job. You're not worried about people hating you. And I do miss that on my Substack in the sense that now with my byline, David Latt on things, people know that what I write is going to reflect at least the current view of David Latt. And look, I reserve obviously the right to change my mind. And I think that's an important part of having a liberal and open mindset. But it is different. I can no longer say, well, that's what Article 3 Groupie thought or said. You know, if you write a character in fiction, like in my novel, my protagonist is, she's very similar to me in a lot of ways, but she's also different. And there are times when I do miss that kind of freedom. But at the same time, obviously, there are advantages. There's a reason I decided to come out as the author of Underneath Their Robes and move into a full-time writing job. And part of that was it's very hard to <laughs> proceed indefinitely under a pseudonym. Whenever people reach out to me and ask for advice on starting a pseudonymous blog or Twitter feed or something, I say, oh, sure, that's fine. And, you know, obviously, you should take whatever technological precautions you need to, say, conceal your IP address or what have you. But I also say, look, I wouldn't do this unless you are ready to accept the consequences in the event that you're outed. Because so many people who started things anonymously under a pseudonym, eventually somehow get outed. And if the consequences are going to be disastrous for you and your family, you might want to think twice about it. Whereas if the consequences aren't terrible, aren't life or career ending, well, then sure, go for it. One could draw a straight line between your experiences as Article 3 groupie back in the day, which I know was 16 years ago, which sounds amazing to say. 2005 just feels like it was yesterday to me. And a lot of what's going on on the internet today, and I think a lot of what makes the internet not only as toxic as, as it is, but I wonder if the pseudonymous nature of the internet prevents average people, let's say, from having to stick their necks out and say something about what's going on, let's say, places like Yale Law School. And I know I'm sort of teasing the lead here because there, there was a, a post that you wrote about what was happening, and we'll, we'll talk about it shortly. And then in relation to your Substack post that you wrote about it, you wrote a Twitter thread about it. And in that Twitter thread, you were talking about how a lot of people were privately coming to you and talking about their private concerns they had, places like your alma mater, Yale, but weren't saying anything publicly about it. And I wonder if the internet is in some ways acting as a release valve for people to privately, under a pseudonym or a false name or whatever, talk about their frustrations that they have with the censorious nature of certain things that are happening. And that release valve allows them to say what they want, but actually no change is brought about because how much can a pseudonym really get done? So I'm wondering if that part of the internet and that ability for people to kind of speak their minds, but not really speak their minds publicly, um, is actually slowing the process and progress towards sort of undoing some of these more censorious events that are happening in places like Yale and others. I totally agree with that. I think that 
people do see it as a release valve. Look, for example, at the comments section of even a mainstream or you know what we would consider mainstream a publication like the New York Times or the Washington Post. I think people there often speak more candidly than they would if they were, say, writing an op-ed for that very same publication. And so I think that if we want to fight back against some of the current censoriousness that runs through society, people do need to take ownership because it is much easier to discount or dismiss an opinion if it comes from somebody anonymous or somebody under a pseudonym because you can think, well, who is that person? And maybe this person has some kind of self-interest or maybe this person is a sock puppet, uh, you know, a fake speaker for someone else. Whereas when you have your own name on it, people know that it's really you. Yeah, sure, there are some occasional cases of impersonation, but for the most part, people know it's you. And so I think a lot of us do need to stand up and be counted if we're going to try and turn the tide on this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. I realized I was kind of walking backwards into this topic, but (laughs) there were too many garden paths along the way and I I couldn't help myself. (laughs) So you were vice president of the Federalist Society while you were at law school. And the Federalist Society is, is, is sort of a player in this saga. So what influenced your political views growing up? And how did you come to align your views of the law at the time with those of the Federalist Society? I guess I would say that growing up, I did come from a conservative family. My parents, they're not super politically engaged, but I would say that they are on the conservative side. And for high school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school run by the Jesuit order, Regis High School, which in some ways, it didn't necessarily have a very fixed political identity. And certainly, there's a strong liberal or social justice tradition in the church. But it also had some conservative views as well, for example, on a lot of traditional social issues like abortion or same-sex marriage, which wasn't really a thing back when I was in high school, but you know, things of that nature. And so, and then in college, I carried forward this conservatism. And then in law school, I think I did maintain it. And I was vice president of the Federalist Society, as you mentioned, which is a I would say the leading organization of conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students. Since law school, I would say my politics have actually drifted quite a bit. And I'm no longer a registered Republican. I don't really know that I would still consider myself a conservative or libertarian per se. But I still remain very committed to free thought and expression. And that these days sometimes is enough to get you branded as a conservative, even if on a lot of other issues, you're really not that conservative. For example, you know, one of your past guests, Andrew Sullivan, I think he's somewhat hard to peg ideologically. He doesn't fit neatly into one party or the other. But I think people often now think of him as quote unquote conservative because of his views on issues like free expression and social justice issues and this new censoriousness. Anyway, that's kind of a rambling answer, but I I think a lot of my politics were shaped by my upbringing, which is true for, I think, many people. Yeah, I don't think it's rambling at all. And I think you said a couple of things there that I'd I'd love to expand on. One of our past guests was Greg Lukianoff from FIRE, which is an organization that, for our listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, basically monitors the temperature of free speech on college campuses and steps in if either a student or faculty staff has their free speech rights trampled or taken for granted. And we got into it in that discussion about how defending or promoting free speech or free expression has somehow become a quote-unquote right-wing view. And 
that worries me a great deal, David, not even from a selfish perspective that, oh, you know, I'm worried that this position might be labeled right wing. Oh my God, unclean. But more that something like free speech and free expression should never be partisan. Like there are, of course, going to be some issues you touched on it just now, like abortion, where that's never really going to be something that has extreme bipartisan consensus. Ah, yes, at month, blah, blah, blah. We are completely agreed that that's where that should go. But with something like free speech and free expression, I think it's very dangerous to the small L liberal project if only one side, and I'm using hyperbole here, obviously there are people on the left that believe in free speech and free expression as well, so I don't want to tar them unfairly. But it seems like more and more often, organizations like FIRE, people who stand up for free speech, the speakers who are invited to college campuses who champion free speech, Ben Shapiro, right? It is more rare to see people on the left sort of take up that banner and run with it. And they can do what they please with their life. Whatever they choose to dedicate their time to is their business. The larger point that I'm, I'm concerned about is that I think it's just dangerous for society that it become a partisan issue. So in your opinion, David, and I, <laughs> what do you think from your perspective as someone who studied the law, who's someone who's been writing about this space for a long time, what has caused this to happen in your view, where the idea of free speech and free expression has become almost a partisan hot potato? And what can we do to undo that? How can we make it so everyone feels equally invested in the ideas of free speech and free expression? That's a good question. And it's a tough one. I totally share your concern about free speech somehow becoming this quote unquote, right wing cause. Greg is a good example. Greg's other views are not necessarily hard line right. And in fact, before fire, he litigated on behalf of many causes that I think would traditionally be regarded as causes of the left. And I think what's so great about the work that FIRE does is they defend professors and students on both sides of the aisle. You alluded earlier to the fact that some threats to free speech come from the right, and I condemn those equally. A lot of times people on the left say, well, why don't you go after uh, conservative lawmakers who are trying to prevent college professors from teaching X? I'd be like, I would absolutely go after that or criticize that. I don't defend that. I think that right now, the threats to free expression may be stronger coming from the left, which is why I tend to focus on it. But I condemn them all equally. I, in terms of why, really, it's hard to say. One reason could be that the left likes the fact that it controls a lot of the shapers of public opinion. I think the media definitely leans left. I think that academia leans left. And so if you control a lot of the powerful organs that shape public opinion, then you have a vested interest in reducing the scope of what is considered acceptable opinion of sort of narrowing that so-called Overton window, because you're the one who controls the infrastructure of speech. I think that if conservatives had as equal or strong a grip on some of these outlets or some of this machinery compared to the left, I don't know that the left would be quite as excited about trying to clamp down on free expression. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I, I think you touched on something key here, which is that a lot of these divides, whether they're around free speech or other topics, they sort of meme themselves into existence because of our two-party two sides only system. Like as you were saying, if we lived in an alternate universe in which nine out of 10 channels was was Fox News or Fox News Lite, I imagine without changing anyone's views about anything, without changing what anyone personally believed, 
that free speech and free expression would be a quote unquote left wing issue, right? I think it's because that we have this completely bifurcated two parties only system that when people understandably on either side jostle or chafe against something censorious or restrictive or, you know, like back in the days of the Patriot Act, you know, if you were either against the war or in Iraq or you were against some of the restrictions of the Patriot Act, you were labeled as unpatriotic, right? Which of course was was 9.9 out of 10 times not true. But the fact of the matter is, is because it was coming from the right that if you objected to it, you're either a complete sellout and you no longer were on the right or you were automatically on the left. And it seems like something is similar is happening with free speech, but that these divisions aren't actually real. Just people are put into these boxes of left and right, depending on where they fall in regards to a particular topic. But it's kind of just become memed into existence. Yes. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. This has been lumped on the right side of the ledger, but there's really no particular reason why it should or has to be. Okay, so I've been sort of slow walking here, but on the Federalist Society website under the banner, Our Purpose, the organization states that, quote, law schools and the legal profession are currently strongly dominated by a form of orthodox liberal ideology, which advocates a centralized and uniform society. While some members of the academic community have dissented from these views, by and large, they are taught simultaneously with and indeed as if they were the law, end quote. Now, this statement of purpose from the Federalist Society feels like it dovetails nicely with what happened at Yale back in September when a second-year law student and Federalist Society member, Trent Colbert, sent an email on September 15th inviting members of the Native American Law Student Association to a social event. He wrote, quote, I'll try and channel my inner 20-something, sup, N-A-L-S-A. Hope you're all still feeling social. This Friday at 7.30, we will be christening our very own, soon-to-be, world-renowned NALSA Trap House by throwing a Constitution Day bash in collaboration with the Federal Society. Planned attractions include Popeye's Chicken, basic bitch American-themed snacks like apple pie, etc., a cocktail station, assorted hard and soft beverages, and, most importantly, the opportunity to attend the NALSA Trap House's inaugural mixer Hope to see you all there. End quote. So, David, for our listeners, would you mind walking us through what was wrong with this email <laughs> and what set off a firestorm that, that the social media political commentariat chewed on for several weeks? Yes. So, the organization that Trent sent this to is NALSA, N-A-L-S-A, the Native American Law Students Association. Trent himself is of Native American ancestry. He sent this email out, an invitation to this party, co-sponsored by NALSA and the Federalist Society. And minutes later, it was posted as a screenshot, essentially, to the 2L, the second year law students group me. Group me is an app sort of like Slack. It's used for messaging and communication within a group. And the president of the Yale chapter of BALSA, the Black Law Students Association, accused Colbert of inviting people to what she viewed as a celebration of quote unquote whiteness and what she viewed as a blackface party. Now, in terms of what you just read, there's no mention whatsoever of a celebration of whiteness or a blackface party, but here's how she read that email. She read the reference to a trap house as referring to essentially a drug den, and then she viewed this as 
something typically associated with the black community. And then she viewed that as essentially saying this was going to be some kind of party making fun of the African-American community in the manner of blackface. And she also seized on the reference that Popeye's fried chicken would be served. And of course, fried chicken is this racist trope that's often been used in stereotypes of African-Americans. And so she seized upon that as further evidence. And finally, others also noted that the party was being co-sponsored by the Federalist Society. And she said that the Federalist Society has a history of various anti-Black views. And so she criticized this invitation as, in essence, racist. And then in the hours that passed, other people piled on in this group me and also criticized Trent and the email and uh, attacked it as racist and offensive and things spiraled from there. Yes. And the diversity director of Yale Law School, I believe I'm pronouncing their name correctly, Yassine Eldick, who's a former Obama White House official, went on to say that the student's membership in the Federalist Society had triggered his peers. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That this email was triggering, that it caused great upset and offense to members of the community at Yale. And so that official, that administrator, Yassine Eldick, the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Yale Law, or DEI, he received a flurry of complaints, something like nine complaints in the next 24 hours after Trent's message went out, complaints of discrimination and harassment, that people had been discriminated against and harassed by Trent's triggering message. And I should just say, just by way of explanation, I interviewed Trent for my Substack original jurisdiction. And he explained that when he sent that, he did not intend Trap House to have any racial connotation. And he didn't know the term had any racial implications. He thought of Trap House as essentially a party house, which is why it seemed a fitting setting for this Constitution Day celebration. He explained to me in the interview that he viewed Trap House as like frat house, but without the frat. He had no idea that there were somehow racial connotations or overtones or implications at all from this term trap house. And so he really, I think, stumbled into this. And there was, at least in sort of the traditional definition of racism, which involves some kind of animus or hostility or intent, I think he did not have any racist intent. And I would not call the email racist in that sense. But now, of course, there's this new definition of racism where you can be an unintentional racist if your words or actions somehow reflect a systemic racism that runs through society. And I think that Trent's critics would say, well, we don't care about your intent or your subjective knowledge. Your email was racist because it reflected this systemic racism throughout our society. Right. There's a couple things to use a popular turn of phrase, unpack there. So. A recent guest of the show was Bertrand Cooper, who wrote an article for Current Affairs called Who Gets to Create Black Pop Culture? And in our discussion, we talked about how oftentimes black, both within and outside of what we call the black community, is often synonymous with poor and how that's really a problem, not just for how people who are outside of that community perceive it, but also it limits the ways in which one is allowed, quote unquote, to be black. And Bertrand comes from a a working class, very poor, just to put it bluntly, background. And he talks about how his experiences in college and outside of college, where people from middle and upper class backgrounds who were black, would oftentimes 
when they would talk about things like poverty, when they would talk about things like drug use, et cetera, they would use a lot of we language when it was clear from Bertrand who'd actually lived that, who actually spent time as a child in what I guess one would call a trap house, would hear them talk that way in sort of vague we's and, you know, us and this sort of thing. But once he started asking questions and started asserting his own biography, he realized that a lot of the students that were saying this stuff had actually never experienced what he had experienced as a child. And so it seems like what's happening here, David, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is you have a student like Trent who uses, and this is on Urban Dictionary, right? Who uses a popular turn of phrase. I mean, there's a incredibly popular left-wing podcast called Chapo's Trap House, <laughs> which is co-hosted by a bunch of folks who I do not believe are African-American. And they don't use that phrase in the way that this diversity, equity, and inclusion officer would have you believe. And so what it seems is going on here is someone like this director, right? Like many people in the American populace hear things like fried chicken or trap house, right? And then they, right? Not the writer, but the person who was reading it projects their own internalized stereotypes of what quote unquote blackness is onto the email, onto whatever's written, and then assume the intent of the writer, even though that writer might not have been thinking that at all. So we have this thing where there's a conflation of poverty and blackness then people internalize that, take that as truth, believe that anyone else who writes anything that could vaguely be construed as being near those two things as having conflated them internally themselves and then marks that person as guilty. And it seems like a strange turn of events here, David, where if I believe in one thing, then you must also believe it. So if you write something that I can interpret it as also having backed up my own belief, I can by assertion say that you must believe it as well. And no amount of arguing against me would ever disprove me because I know what's in your heart. And that just seems, whether it's coming from the right or the left, like an intensely problematic way to view the world. I agree, absolutely. A lot of critics of Trent, of the boss president, for example, said, well, if we're going to talk about racism and traffic and stereotypes, who was doing that more? Was it the Balsa president who immediately jumped to the conclusion that this was somehow racist? Because Trent said nothing about connecting this term trap house, party house with the black community and poverty and drugs and fried chicken. He didn't do any of that. And also for the record, as he told me in the interview, he didn't choose the catering. He didn't choose the fried chicken. It was somebody else who picked it. And they picked it out of convenience because if people are familiar with New Haven, there's a bunch of outlets of Popeye's chicken. It's much more common in the area than say Chick-fil-A or something. So I agree with you. People assumed it meant a certain thing and they imposed that mindset upon Trent when we know from having talked to him, from having interviewed him, and he also wrote an essay, I think, for Medium about this, that was not his subjective intent, not at all. Yes. And there were a couple directions that I could have gone with this interview, right? And I was I wanted to be sensitive so that it didn't overlap too much with other talks that I've had with someone like the aforementioned Greg Lukianoff, where we talk about freedom of speech on campus. If there is something that we haven't quite dug into on the show that much that I, I think we're sort of investigating now, it's when we have this sort of national level or social media level discussion about censorship and the left and culture war stuff, people will often think that if you're concerned about something like this, right? Because in your Twitter thread where you posted your Substack article, this was back on October 14th, you wrote, quote, Monday was national coming out day. So I'm coming out as someone who thinks that cancel culture might be a problem and free speech might be in danger. And then you wrote in parentheses, which I will also say here (laughs) before folks accuse me of insensitivity to LGBTQ plus people, I should mention I'm gay, end quote. (laughs) So for our listeners out there, I think he could have appropriated that just fine. But 
One, I would love to know what it was explicitly about this incident that kind of made you come out, so to speak, and write about it. But just to dovetail with that, and you can incorporate this in your answer if you'd like, is I think for me, if I could articulate what is sort of my problem with events like these, isn't that I'm not concerned with things like racism, sexism, bigotry, etc. Those are all very important. I think what people are pushing back, and maybe you fall into this camp, David, is we must all adhere to one person or one type of person's definition of what is racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera, right? Where when you pull the average person on the street, I'm sure you have friends you've talked about this with in private, something that might be declared racist on social media, you ask one of your friends who isn't on Twitter, right? It's always someone who isn't on Twitter. You say, hey, what do you think about this? And they'll be like, eh, you know, I could have done without it, but whatever. But it's something that becomes like a firestorm that tens of thousands of people are writing. That's like the, the second coming of you know, whatever the most awful event in human history is. What was it about this event specifically, right? Because over the last several years, there have been many events that have been kind of in this tenor, so to speak. And I'm sure you've been following this space. So what was it about this event specifically? Was it that it was your alma mater, that it was associated to federal society? What was it exactly? Those were two very big Factors, absolutely. I am always concerned about what goes on at Yale Law School. I have a great deal of fondness for the institution, and I want it to be the best version of itself, the version of Yale Law School that I remember when I was attending in the mid to late 90s, where it was an institution very much committed to free debate and expression. And people also got along. We had fiercely divergent worldviews, but we all treated each other with respect and collegiality. And so I think that was one thing to kind of see, wow, things are so different at my alma mater today. Uh, the accusations, the immediate accusations of bad faith and, and racism, the accusations flying instantaneously without even giving the person an opportunity to explain themselves or any interest in what that person was thinking or doing, this jump to rush to judgment. That was one thing that jumped out at me. Second, yes, as a former officer of the Federalist Society, that definitely attracted my attention as well. Because the Federalist Society, just by way of background, is often an embattled organization on law school campuses. They don't necessarily have the most popular views. And so the attacks on Trent very much resonated with me. Again, when I was in FedSoc, as it's called, we were not mistreated in the way that Trent was mistreated, but it did resonate with me. And then I think, finally, I just kind of felt enough was enough. Because when I read that email, I just didn't see anything offensive about it. And as you were saying, when I would talk about it privately with people, I would show them this email and say, well, tell me what's offensive about it. A lot of times people wouldn't know, or they would say the wrong thing. A lot of people would seize upon the reference to, quote, basic bitch, close quote, American snacks and think, oh, is that it? Was that it? The misogyny? And actually, that really got neglected in terms of the commentary on this incident. It was very much focused on the reference to trap house. So I just kind of thought, especially with those first two elements, Yale and the Federalist Society, it was very much a there but for the grace of God go I moment. I could easily imagine myself, whether today or in the past, saying something that I did not intend as offensive and then suddenly realizing that I was in huge trouble, uh, that I was going to get canceled because of something offensive that I said. And I think that sometimes it does take this kind of self-interest, honestly, to get people off the sidelines on this debate about free speech. Because when it's somebody else who's at the heart of the firestorm, a lot of people, including myself for many years, will just kind of lie low. We're just going to be quiet because, well, we don't want to get attacked by the mob either. So let's just keep quiet. But it's very much like that saying about, well, you know, they came for X and I said nothing and they came for Y and I said nothing. And, you know, then they came for me. It's basically like that because 
as free speech rights get eroded and taken away from this group and that group and this group and that group, and you just stay silently by, at a certain point, it's going to affect you. And so for me, I kind of thought, okay, you know what? I've been privately saying these things for a long time, but I've said nothing or very little publicly about them. Now it's my turn to step up to the mic. Let me play a bit devil's advocate here. Someone on the other side of this might say, you know, well, David, you're a different generation, right? When you were coming up in the 1990s, it was a much more insensitive time. I'm sure that you had to deal with microaggressions, being the son of immigrants, being a person of color. And it's not that college students these days are snowflakes. It's that they're just more attuned to the concerns of the marginalized. And so when you're coming out against this, let's say, are you really the free speech warrior who is defending the freedom of expression? Or perhaps is your view of what free speech should be a bit outdated? And we should center the concerns of people who might take real harm from letters like this. I mean, how can you potentially, I guess, articulate the difference between those two things? Are you out of date or are the things that you're defending as timeless as you say? I guess I have two responses to that because I think your question has two levels to it. The first part, it is true that some people said to me, well, you're older, you're not down with the slang. People who are younger would clearly have seen this reference to Trap House as racist. I don't think that's the case. I think if you look at its usage on social media, if you look at Urban Dictionary and other sources, and if you just look at Trent's own subjective experience, I don't think it's clear even to people who are in their 20s that this is a racist term. But fine, like, I'm less concerned, actually, I've had a lot of debate with people about whether or not this is racist. To be honest, I'm less concerned or interested in whether the email is quote, unquote, racist, than with how we deal with these incidents. And it's always been my view that to quote this one professor, I believe she's at Smith, who talks a lot about this, when somebody says something that is offensive, whether inadvertently or not, the better response is to call the person in as opposed to call the person out you know, explain in a very patient, caring way, look, I took offense at this, maybe you didn't intend it, but I took offense at it for, you know, reasons of X, Y, and Z, as opposed to immediately jumping to judgment and saying the person is racist and a bad person. If the people who were offended by Trent's email had just reached out to him privately to say, hey, do you want to grab a beer? You know, something in your email rubbed me the wrong way, and I want to just explain it to you. I think he would have had a very different reaction. Instead, after being flamed and publicly called out, he dug in his heels and he became more defiant. And I understand why, because it's one of the worst things to be called racist in this society. And so I think we should be less concerned about the particularities of was this email offensive or not, and more about how we deal with it as a community. The other big problem, and the reason this incident got a lot of attention was the response of the administration. So Yasin Eldik, the DEI director at Yale Law, and Ellen Cosgrove, who is essentially the dean of students, called in Trent less than 24 hours after this email went out. And they basically pressured him to send out an apology. And they even drafted an apology for him to send out. And he resisted this because in his view, he hadn't done anything wrong. But again, it was this heavy-handed response and this ham-handed response of the administrators that I think caught people's attention as much as the debate over this email. And my view, as I expressed in a Substack post, is, look, I don't think administrators should be getting involved in these disputes. If students are offended, that's fine, but they should reach out to their fellow students and explain why, and people should hash it out. And again, I know that Obama's beer summit sometimes got made fun of, but you know what? Maybe, I mean, I'm not a beer drinker, but maybe the best way to hash these things out is to get together over drinks or coffee or a meal and explain your offense as opposed to immediately 
within just hours, minutes, rushing to the administration and claiming you're offended. I think that the better way to hash these things out is to just talk them through. And one thing I'll just add finally on this point is schools like Yale are institutions of higher learning, and you learn often by making mistakes. And that's the best way to learn, not by being sort of indoctrinated from above, but just making mistakes and learning from them. Uh, You know, there was that very well-known incident at Yale, this is the college, undergraduates a number of years ago about offensive Halloween costumes where the Christakis, these two professors at Yale sent out a memo, or one of them did, I, I forget, but was informed by the input of the other, saying, look, if you are offended by somebody's Halloween costume, well, then, you know, talk it out. Not that we should give you guidelines about what is or is not offensive, but College is about experimentation and trying things out and making mistakes and learning from them. And I certainly said a lot of things in college or wrote a lot of things in college that I would never write or say today and that I certainly don't believe today. But I learned from that that experience. And I think I learned more from making my own mistakes than I would have if somebody had called me into an administrator's office and yelled at me. I think I would have learned less and I would have been more defiant and dug in my heels if that had happened. A former guest of the show, Lenore Skenazy, and I talked about how children and young people today and Jonathan Haidt talks about this as well, and and Greg Lukianoff does as well, are less apt to resolve their conflicts with one another, especially at specific universities, it seems, like Yale and others. They're less apt to resolve conflicts between one another and instead appeal to whatever they believe is the adult authority to resolve their conflicts instead. I remember reading when I was researching this case that Trent did try multiple times to resolve this with the offended parties, but was repeatedly rebuffed. Is that right? Yes, that's right. He said he offered to meet individually with anyone who was offended. But as he was told by the administrators and by others on the group me, the communication channel, that would force the offended students to, quote, do the work of educating Trent. And since Trent was the offending party, why should the people he offended be required to do the work or explain to him why he was offensive? So I think that was their rationale or their argument. Right. And actually, that touches on something that I think is very key to all of this. And it also allows me to reference something that if you're below a certain age and you're listening to this podcast, you will not know what I'm talking about. But I think, David, you're like seven or eight years older than me. But I think you're right in the sweet spot of of knowing this reference. Are you familiar with the Magic Eye books? No, I don't think so, actually. Tell me more. You know, those books back in like the, I think, 80s and 90s, they were really big in the 90s, where it was like a a blur of different colors and like zigzags on a page, right? And it was like a whole book of this. And if you stared at it long enough and looked at it just the right way, you know, some some kids I remember had to like cross their eyes to see it right. You could see like a boat. Oh, yes. Or like a cheetah, you know, (laughs) they did full size posters of these. You know, I, I remember people having them in their rooms. They're like, oh, man, you can't see the zebra. Oh, my gosh, man, I can totally see it. Right. And for the life of me, and this is real, for the life of me, I got one of those books as a present as a kid, and I, I stared at it until I had a headache, and I could never see any of the images, right? The reason that I bring that up is I think it ties directly to what happened here with Yale and with Trent, and I think it's happening over and over and over again. And what I think is happening here, and why I think it's frustrating for many people, and again, I think it is disconnected from our left-right paradigm, but slotted in there because that's the only language we have, is... There are a few people, right? However many a few is in this case, a few thousand people who have magic eye books. And in those magic eye books, right, they might look like just a blur of images or zigzags or colors to most people. But if you're one of these special few thousand, right, in those images, you see racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, etc., right? And the problem is, is if you're a person who 
with goodwill, right, cannot see those images as hard as you're trying to see them. And you want more information and you want to understand, okay, I believe you that you see the boat, right, in this image. I can't see it. Can you explain to me where or how I can see the boat in this magic eye image, right? And the problem is, is that when someone asks for that image to be articulated so that they can see it too, imagine if you're trying to sell this book at a bookstore and you're the clerk, right? And someone's coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm really interested in buying this book, but I can't see the horse. Like, can you tell me how I could potentially see the horse so that like I can really get into this book as well? And the clerk said, it's not my job to educate you. You want me to put in the work to show you where the horse is in this image? Yeah. (laughs) Right? I don't think that book would be much of a sell. So, I think what a lot of people are having a problem with here, and I'd love to toss the ball back to you in a second, David, is it feels like, and I want to be careful here, right? Because if I were to paint with a broad brush and say that cultural norms have always been a negotiation between different, that's not true, right? We we don't have to go that far back in time to see that people of color and specifically historically black people in this country and sexual minorities have not had an even seat at the table that where they can say what is or is not offensive, right? So, that historically has never been the case. But I think the problem is right now is that it's also not the case today and that not everyone who's involved has a seat at the table, but rather it's a small group of people who are often ideologically aligned, who decide what is or is not offensive, right? Almost by fiat, then tell everyone else whether they're in or not in a certain community that that thing is now offensive. And if you disagree, if you can't see the horse in the image, then it's not their job to show it to you. And so I think that's really bewildering and sort of discomforting for a lot of people because what is or isn't offensive should really be a negotiation within limits, right, for society to have rather than sort of a top-down, I'm going to sell you this Magic Eye book, and if you can't see what I'm seeing, that means you're problematic sort of thing. So (laughs) I know that was a bit of a rant, but it seems really connected to what's happening today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good analogy, the Magic Eye books. And I think that, again, to sort of take that analogy – We're all members of a community, whether it's a law school community or whether it's the community in our town or state or the United States, fellow Americans. We're on the same team here. We should be working together. And so if you can't see what's in the Magic Eye book, maybe I'll tell you, well, try crossing your eyes or hold it closer or hold it farther apart. Or do you see where this line is? That's the back of the horse or whatever it is. We should be trying to help each other. What I dislike about the current approach to things is it immediately takes on this us versus them those who can see it and those who can't. It just breaks us down into teams. And this contributes to the kind of partisanship and the kind of divisiveness we have as opposed to saying, you know what, we're all in this together. Let's talk this through. And sure, I'll I'll help you see the image here as opposed to just jump to you're a bad person. Yes. I feel like a special kind of pain for people who don't have sociologically diverse friend or family groups. I mean that in the best way I can phrase it. I live in Los Angeles, right? And I have a very diverse group of friends. We we look like a colors of Benetton ad, I suppose. But what that does is that, and obviously all of my friends are just individuals, right? None of them are spokespeople for their quote unquote communities any more than I am like a tome of knowledge about Armenian-ness, right? So when I talk to a friend who happens to be black or Asian or gay or what have you, and I talk to them about a hot topic or a, a news event that involves their quote unquote community, and I ask their opinion on it, right? Sometimes their opinion will be aligned with what the top line community opinion and I'm putting that in quotes, is of that event, but oftentimes it will not be, right? And I think what gets lost in these conversations, David, is that 
these articles, these essays are written with such authority when they say that members of the blank community or the blank community, whatever that community is, were offended at what happened at XYZ, right? I think that that language in the same way that our left and right artificial bifurcation is limiting us is really limiting us as well because it creates a kind of scenario where if you're a member of that quote unquote community to call back to what happened with my conversation with Bertrand Cooper and you disagree, you're scared to speak up because you don't want to be inauthentic. And if you're not a member of that quote unquote community, you feel like it's not your place. But I I wonder if these very ideas of community are the limiting principle because who's asserting that they have leadership over these communities and why is it their opinion that's the correct one, right? I mean, you don't strike me as the kind of guy who would dare to speak on behalf of the Filipino community and that if anyone disagrees with your opinions, they must have gone astray. I'm just wondering how we wrestle with that language so that we can have a more nuanced conversation about these topics. I absolutely agree with that as well. I think that a lot of times there are these self-appointed leaders of certain communities and their view tends to be regarded, especially by the media, as the dominant view or the view of that entire community in this very totalizing fashion. But I think one of the problems with what we're seeing currently is just this erasure of individualism. It's all about your group and what kind of privilege you may or may not have or what kind of oppression you may or may not have experienced as a group. Even if maybe individually you haven't experienced that oppression or you disagree with the rest of your group. So I think we just need to make more room for individuals and individualism in a very liberal lowercase l kind of way as opposed to being so focused on and obsessed with these questions of group identity. And, you know, this whole idea of quote unquote doing the work. I don't think that talking to your fellow citizens, your fellow students, your classmates, I don't think that should be regarded as quote unquote work. That's what we do in an academic community. That's what we do in a democracy. And that's what we do to persuade each other in a classically liberal society in a marketplace of ideas. I don't know why that has to be viewed as quote unquote work. If you could see me right now, I I had like my right hand up like I was in church just listening to you right now (laughs) because I totally agree. And it feels like the topic of this conversation is just like a conflation, right? Like what happens when we're trying to talk about these issues and people's either beliefs or the reasons that they have their views are conflated with other things through a combination of like personal projection or, or otherwise. And I've, I've tried articulating this both on and off Twitter and on this podcast. When people like you and I, I suppose, if I may be so bold, push back against stuff like this, I think it can be erroneously labeled as you don't care about marginalized voices, right? Or you're unconcerned with the views of people who are either oppressed or don't have their voices heard. And I I really take issue with that view because I am. And I, I imagine I'm familiar with enough with your work, David, that I can say pretty confidently that you are as well. But I think the main problem here is not that I am unconcerned with the views of people who oftentimes have not had a seat at the table. My concern is that those very people still don't have a seat at the table, but they have a self-appointed avatar who is speaking for them. I think that's the problem, right? Like, I want Asian, Black, gay, trans, name the group, right? I want all of their voices to be heard. If you've got something to say, I want you to say it. The problem that I have now is that you have these instances in which those very people are being silenced because someone has appointed themselves as the spokesperson for that other person because they happen to look alike. And I think that that is a very real problem. And it's in some ways the exact same problem playing itself out again as it has historically, but with kind of a progressive sounding gloss over it. But those same people are still silenced. And that's a real problem in my view. 
Yes, absolutely. But you're right that it's hard to speak out if you're not the spokesperson, because people will say, well, who are you to speak for that community? Whereas if you have some title or you're a member of some organization, then suddenly you are cloaked in this kind of authority. And so I understand why we often look to people who have titles to express the view of the X community, but I am not a big fan of it. And there is truth, by the way, just to jump in, there is like, I want to be careful not to discount this because I think that and, and I know you aren't as well, but I'm, I want to just say it plainly is like, there are people like if we're, if we're just using a left, right paradigm, right? There are people on the right who too casually, too dismissively, too harshly toss aside the idea of the importance of things like lived experience, the importance and relevance of things like standpoint theory. Do I think they're overused? Do I think they're abused for power grabs? 100%. Do I also believe that there are real experiences that you have living as a man, a woman, someone of Filipino descent, someone who is black. Do I believe that if you live in that body and you experience those things that you have a point of view that someone else who didn't grow up living that life has? 100%. The problem is when it becomes totalizing. And I think that's really the main issue. Yeah. And I should add here, I totally agree with you. I've been a big advocate for greater diversity within the legal profession. This goes back years above the law I was writing about this topic under me years before the current national conversation we're having about these issues. And I have been so in favor of this greater diversity, recognizing, of course, that diversity goes beyond things like skin color. It includes intellectual diversity as well. But I've always been in favor of of diversity of viewpoints. And I've always been conscious of groups that have not had their viewpoints represented in the past. So I'm all about that. And I've certainly worked in the profession to try and promote diversity. And I've spoken on panels and I've given talks about the importance of diversity. So I don't want to be presented as some kind of opponent of diversity and not just viewpoint diversity. I'm talking about racial and gender and sexual orientation and disability or or not. Like, I think that those are all very valuable forms of diversity and we need to cultivate them. Now, look, I think we can have debates about affirmative action and quotas and what have you, but I think that diversity is a valuable thing. We're not automatons. We are human beings. We have lived experience. And again, I don't want to go too far in the direction of so-called anecdata, but those lived experiences can inform decisions about policy. And I think they're valuable and they think they should be shared. Yes, 100%. And I will share a personal anecdata point that I think is relevant here. Like I grew up in a, between a 95 and 85% white town in Northern California, little town called Pleasanton. And so when I went off to college first, and then especially grad school, I came across a lot more diversity in terms of background, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, than I had necessarily been exposed to, right? And a lot of my beliefs that I had come to, you know, just through consuming media, the stereotypes that are promoted in media were challenged, oftentimes not like verbally. But what I mean is, is like when I would become friends with these people, when we would become close and we become friends or enter relationships, like my understanding and knowledge of their background expanded because we became close. And I could see through becoming friends with them or entering relationships with them that my understanding of their own background was limited by my lack of experience. So I think it's really important that we meet and make friends (laughs) or enter relationships with people from diverse backgrounds because it betters all of us. It makes all of us better people by expanding our own base of knowledge and allows us to be more empathetic. I really sound like a broken record here, David, but I think the main problem here, and you've touched on it multiple times in this talk and in your essays, 
is that we have a kind of false diversity because it's a diversity only of really, if we're using a, a kind of a stereotype here, of skin tone or gender, etc., rather than understanding that a person's experience is going to be unique to themselves with some overlapping characteristics depending on background, but uniquely themselves. And I worry that people are making the same sort of conflation that I was making as a white kid growing up in a predominantly white town, but again, with a sort of progressive gloss. You know, this is how black people are. This is how Asian people are. This must be how gay people think because that's what YouTube tells me. It reminds me of my childhood growing up in a not very diverse town because I think that 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 kind of messaging really hurts people. Yeah. And, you know, another example is there's this more recent controversy at Yale involving an anti-racism training that was given by a black woman to members of the first year class. It was made available to the entire law school community. And then this fall, it was given to editors of the Yale Law Journal, which is the flagship publication, the law review at Yale Law School. And in this presentation, she said a lot of things that personally, I disagree with strongly, where she said things about how slavery was inherent to capitalism and biology is this racist, oppressive construct. And this is your November 3rd Substack piece. Yeah. Yes. And so I talked about this and it's an example of somebody purporting to speak on behalf of the community, in this case, the black community. But the person who gave this training, she's just one of many people in the black community. And I suspect that many people in the black community don't necessarily agree with all of the things that she was saying. But I think people didn't publicly necessarily speak out against this because they didn't want to be tagged as racist. And she had already preempted this. She had said in her talk something like, some of the people who disagree with me have perhaps been conditioned to not give credit to or believe the words of black people. So she had already kind of set up this rubric of, oh, if you disagree with me, well, then maybe you're a kind of racist. If you're outside the community, you're racist. If you're inside the community, you have false consciousness. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. If you're a member of that group and you buck the trend, then yes, you're you're false consciousness. You've been brainwashed. You know, who knows? It's the Kafka trap of Kafka traps. Yeah, yeah exactly. You can't escape it. And so I'm, I'm really worried about the state of things in academia, especially. Yeah, me too. And I know that our talk was originally scheduled for last week and, and we rescheduled and I really appreciate that. And when we did reschedule, you sent me that that essay from your Substack, And I have to admit, because you touched on it a little bit here, but I want to kind of summarize it. It was a follow-up to your essay about Trent Colbert's experience and about how there's more, quote-unquote, cultural insanity manifesting itself at your alma mater. This was an officially sanctioned diversity trainer. And again, just to echo kind of what you just said, she implied that it was impossible to be anti-Semitic to Jews who were not black. She suggested that the FBI artificially inflates the numbers of anti-Semitic hate crimes. She also said that slavery is intrinsic to capitalism, as you mentioned, and that there was a, quote, genocide against black people, that biology itself is a, quote, racist pseudoscience created by white people to further their dominance, that, quote, politeness and perfectionism are white supremacy, and that gender is a, quote, tool of colonization responsible for, quote, multiple murders of black trans women. And there are a couple things here. One, I think there's like a no true Scotsman thing that happens, where if you point to something like this, which again... Yale Law School, I would say, is pretty prestigious. And I imagine that this woman's, whatever she was paid, was handsome, right? And, you know, that's fine. She should get paid whatever she can. But I think when people read stories like this at like elite universities where there should be a diversity of viewpoints, but we we hope that those viewpoints are grounded in some kind of agreeable reality, they hear stories like this and are understandably concerned. But I think the other part of me, David, when I read that essay... 
I don't know what it is. I think that over the last year, you know, I've just been having these conversations with so many people, whether it's with documentarian Nadia Gill about this sort of energy taking over the documentary space where you have to justify when you apply for documentary grants that you are not only from a certain ethnic background, but you have the appropriate view of someone from that ethnicity if you want to make a documentary about your own life, right? Or someone like Greg Lukianoff, who's talking about the censorious nature of college and free speech. Or Bertrand Cooper, who talks about the limited lens through which we view Black American life. Or something like this, right? The, the Substack essay you just wrote about it's impossible to be anti-Semitic to a, a Jewish person who isn't racially Black, or that there's a genocide against Black people in 2021. And I think that reading this stuff, David, <laughs> and I'm sorry you have to be on the other end of a therapy session, it's like, <laughs> I guess I'm a bit worn out. We keep having these discussions. I'm having these fantastic guests on, right? You included. And I just, I want us to be able to push back against something like this. And I use us very loosely. I think you're doing much more work in this space than I am. But maybe this is just the state of things now. Am I being too cynical? But it just feels like it's, it feels like it's everywhere. It feels like it's marching in some sort of lockstep, not to be too conspiratorial. I don't think there's like, they're all in an email chain. But it feels like the same people with the same views are popping up in very prestigious and elite institutions and I almost like, I, no joke, David, and this is just, I've gone completely off script here. There was a part of me, I'm com- being completely serious, where I thought about deleting all of the questions and just being like, so how'd you meet your husband? <laughs> like, I, I almost I almost would rather talk about like joyous things, right? Because just reading and talking about this stuff and realizing how prevalent it is, it can ruin a day. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's a reason I haven't tweeted for a week or so because it is exhausting and these topics are very polarizing. I mean, if you want to talk about quote unquote doing the work, doing things like what you're doing, running a podcast on this topic, it's not necessarily going to make you friends in certain quarters and it can be very stressful. You know, by way of background, until recently, I received mostly positive coverage. I had this very bad case of COVID last year that wound me up in the hospital for three weeks, including almost a week on a ventilator. And I was essentially live tweeting this this COVID experience. And I got a lot of support and good wishes from across the political spectrum. And in the months as I was recovering and also writing about my recovery on Twitter and for other publications, Washington Post, LA Times, I got a lot of positivity. People were always saying good things about me. Oh, hope you have a strong recovery. Thanks for telling us about the dangers of COVID and how it can affect even relatively young and healthy people. I was basking in all of this positive stuff. And I would much rather continue to be a, you know, poster boy for COVID and the dangers of it and the seriousness with which we need to take it, as opposed to getting involved in this stuff too, and then having people attack me. And, you know, since I've started discussing these issues, people, you know, dig into your background, they find something to make fun of you for or to criticize you. It is draining. And there are times when we would rather just take a warm bath or talk about personal stuff. But I do think, and you know, I'm not saying everyone needs to talk about this all the time, but I think some of us do need to talk about it because I think that is how we're going to turn the tide. And I'm actually going to be an optimist. I think, you know, the Virginia gubernatorial election was interesting. I'm not a registered Republican or a Democrat, but I thought that was interesting because it does suggest that some people, at least privately in the privacy of a voting booth, are, say, concerned about the way that young children are being taught, for example, about how to view themselves as members of different groups and being privileged or not privileged and being racist or not racist. And and we're just talking about these issues a lot. And maybe this is the beginning of, of some change. So I'm actually uh, optimistic. I mean, going back to your conversation with 
Andrew Sullivan recently, I think he pointed out that, look, the average American is actually somebody who I think is pretty reasonable on these things. I don't want to make it sound like the excesses that we're talking about, like this really insane training at Yale Law School are things that the average American would buy into or propagate. That's so far from the truth. I think the issue is we just need to speak up. I have written about how, you know, I think it's a silent majority that is opposed to some of these excesses. But if the silent majority never speaks up, you have this one-way ratchet because it just keeps going more and more extremely to the left because the people who are the forces on this side are very vocal. They speak up a lot. And if nobody else speaks up on the other side, the people in power, the law school administrators and deans, the editors of newspapers, the CEOs of companies, they just think, well, everybody must agree with these people because nobody is saying otherwise. And then they just go farther to the left. So again, I am a big believer in diversity and inclusion. I don't want to roll back the clock on any of that. I just think we need to balance it out with a certain amount of common sense and moderation and restraint and mutual respect and tolerance and understanding. I think that's absolutely true. I've got two more questions for you if you have the time before we get to the final question that I ask every guest. I think the one thing that people will say when it comes to stories like this happening at Yale, they're like, why are you so concerned that, you know, it's happening in a few elite colleges? Like Andrew Sullivan said, you know, like the average American doesn't really believe a lot of this stuff, right? So what's the big deal? And I think the problem is, if I'm going to articulate it, to use a a metaphor that I, (laughs) I pulled out of my pocket 30 minutes ago, for better or worse, the people that come out of these elite colleges go on to make the magic eye books, you know, like whether it's in the judiciary or the head of corporations or politics, what have you, they're the folks. And this has been bad in the past as well, where you have a largely white, largely male leadership that is oftentimes less concerned with people who are unlike themselves. That has been problematic in the past. And I think what a lot of people have concerns about is, yes, it's only happening in a few very rarefied spaces. But again, for better or worse, these people, because of how connected they are and the opportunities they have, go on to make the metaphorical magic eye books that then everyone else has to struggle to kind of try and see the horse or the boat. And I think that that is a big concern. But David, to ask you a question that I think is important to articulate, and I think you're well prepared to articulate it. A lot of these stories come out about specifically diversity, equity, and inclusion administrations at these colleges. That's what happened exactly with Trent at Yale. It happened with uh, Lindsay Shepard back in 2017 up in Canada. So in your view, are these diversity, equity, and inclusion administrations useful in universities? Do they belong there? Do they have a purpose? And if so, for you, if you were king for a day, what would their ideal role look like if they were still there? It's interesting. I think that maybe these bureaucracies have gotten a little bloated. If you look at the webpage for Yale's Office of Student Affairs or OSA, Yale Law School's OSA, it's it's huge. And I think the problem, as a lot of people have talked about, is once you have this large administration, it's very much invested in justifying its own existence. And so the administrators feel obliged to do a lot because, well, why are they getting paid otherwise? So I think there is a place for having diversity officers at organizations, but I think that maybe A, you should consider the size of that organization or operation relative to the overall institution, and B, they shouldn't feel pressured or obliged to sing for their supper and to do stuff just for the sake of doing stuff. So for example, a lot of law firms have a diversity officer, a chief diversity officer, and I don't really have a problem with that. A lot of times that person is 
a resource to maybe minority lawyers and staff. A lot of times that person is involved in programming for API Heritage Month or Black Heritage Month or Pride Month or what have you. I don't think it is a bad thing for somebody at an organization to be thinking about how you can advance diversity and inclusion. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think just if you have too many of these people and they're paid too much and they're too large a bureaucracy, then they're going to have to justify their existence. And then they're going to start wasting time chasing after people like Trent Colbert when there are actually real issues that they could focus on. So I'm not saying abolish all of the DEI departments. We just need to be more mindful of their proper scope and what their mission or their portfolio is. Yes. And I think you touched on something very important there because it's something that can affect any organization if it becomes too large. Like let's take the the military, for instance, right? Or really any governmental organization. Every year when it's time to come up for budgetary review, and this happens in the private sphere as well. I've seen this play out at ad agencies where I work. Every year you're asked to justify the amount of money that your organization or your field is receiving and you have to justify it or your budget is going to be cut, right? So the problem is, and this happens with private prisons too, if all of a sudden (laughs) you become more successful at what you're doing, right? Like there's less war, so you don't need as big of a military budget. Or you know what? Our very diverse student body is getting along pretty famously. We had some bumps, but every year there's more progress, which is great. That's exactly what we want. The problem there is that if you do your job well in these instances, you eventually kind of whittle yourself away into being unnecessary. So I think you touched on something very key here, which is diversity and the need for someone who's looking out for that. I 100% agree with you. That is key. You, You need to be able to perceive a bunch of different perspectives and be sensitive to that. But separate from that, separate from diversity, the idea of a organization needing to justify its budget and its existence is a problem that affects anything when it gets too large. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you have this cottage industry now of people who are all about like this trainer doing the anti-racism training. And again, companies and law firms, for example, love to spend money on this because then they can point to it and say, look at how much we're doing. But you really have to go beyond just hiring people and you have to think about what they're actually going to do in your organization. Well, the problem with that, David, is that actually requires real work rather than just having something there. So if you get sued, you can point to it and say, we did our best. Yep. <laughs> I've literally seen that play out in corporations where like there is like a real heinous incident of like sexism or racism. And the organization's like, but we had this, we had this week of training for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yep. we, we did our due diligence here. There's, you can't sue us. And it's like, guys, it's, <laughs> you can't just, you can't just have a meeting and then just call it a day. Okay. So my second last question, David, you mentioned this, but about 18 months ago, right at the start, of the coronavirus pandemic here in the US. You were hospitalized for 17 days, I believe, with COVID-19. You spent nearly a week on a ventilator. I remember seeing some of that story playing out on Twitter as you were writing it. You wrote an essay for the LA Times, I think also for the Washington Post about your experience healing from COVID-19. The LA Times article was from July of last year. And how determining when you're fully healed is a complex question to answer. From the essay you wrote, quote, recovering from a severe case of COVID-19 is not like switching a light on or off. It's more like a dimmer switch where the light gets brighter, then darker, then brighter again, end quote. And so I think most people who've listened to the podcast have heard in the news something called long COVID, where effects from the disease can linger long after a patient has officially, quote unquote, recovered. So my question to you before we get to our final question is, how is your light doing these days? 
I'm happy to say it's shining fairly brightly. I feel, for the most part, pretty recovered. It took a long time. I would probably say that I had significant long COVID ex- uh, symptoms for a year, even after getting out of the hospital. So that would take us into spring of this year. But now I feel mostly recovered. I don't have such shortness of breath anymore. I don't have this terrible cough I had for months afterwards. I lost my voice from the tube they insert down your throat for the ventilator. It damages your vocal cords. I've gotten my voice back, as you can hear on this podcast. So for the most part, I feel fairly recovered. I'm not back to my old fitness. I used to be a runner. I ran the New York Marathon, admittedly, very slowly twice before. I now struggle to jog three or four miles at a pretty slow pace, but I'm trying to build back up. So for the most part, I feel very grateful, especially when I read or hear about people who have much more serious long COVID symptoms. I feel I have very little to complain about. Well, that's a good perspective to have. And I do hope that you're able to, because if you're anything like some friends of mine who love running and run regularly, having that missing from your life or having it not feel the same can, this can sound frivolous to people who aren't runners or, you know, and I'm myself not a runner. I, I only barely get it. But if you have like a regular pattern or a regular rhythm in your life, whether it's running or something else, not being able to do that can be in its own small way, but significant way debilitating. So I'm hoping that you're able to get that back because I imagine it's important to you. But to take us to our final question that I ask every guest, I'd like to turn it to you. We've touched on this topic a bit over the course of our conversation. As individuals, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It is impossible. So David, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? That's a very good question. And knowing that that is the question, I should have actually thought about it more in advance. But honestly, I would offer empathy to the people who are on the other side of me in this debate. I think that people who do feel genuinely hurt and offended by certain comments, I can understand that. I really appreciate that. And I can understand why those things would be hurtful. And a lot of times when I'm writing, I try to think to myself, well, how would I feel if I had received this message? And I was convinced that this person had a racist intent. It's very hard for us to transcend, again, our own upbringings and backgrounds to overcome our preconceived beliefs or our our prejudices or our priors. And so I do try to be empathetic towards people on the other side of this and imagine and think back to situations where I was so offended by something and felt that it was incumbent upon the other person to apologize rather than for me to try and explain it to them. So I think we all just need to be a little bit more understanding and that will take us pretty far. Well, thank you for your time, David, and your words today. And I would highly recommend to anyone who's interested in topics like these relating to the law, relating to issues like free speech, free expression, sort of what's going on in the world regarding these issues today. I highly recommend that they check out David Substack, Original Jurisdiction. You are a fantastic writer, and I feel like you have a way of sort of cleanly delineating and talking about these topics in a way that I feel really captures their essence and what the topic is about. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me and please keep up the great work 